Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the new season of Mostatorious. Twelve new episodes on their way. Well, it's been a busy summer for me. Besides the regular stuff, uh, I've been working on converting a basement room into a new studio devoted to podcasting, and it's a lot more work than I ever anticipated, but a great break from staring at a computer. Also, I'm coming closer to debuting a new podcast, this one based on true crimes from Minnesota history. And I'll definitely keep you posted on this over the next few weeks as it comes together. And I've still got my turn of the 20th century political scandally book about a rotten surgeon and mayor of Minneapolis named Doc Ames, who took office in 1901, proceeded to fire half of the police force, replace the ranks with criminals. And he went on a year and a half crime bender. (laughs) And that is what the story is about, his rise and his fall, along with his inner circle of crazies. And the Kindle version on Amazon is now available for a short time right now to discount. If you'd like to pick up the e-version, give it a go. Again, Dirty Doc Ames and the Scandal that Chick Minneapolis. Uh, So there we have it. Now let's get on to the show. I'm so glad to have as my guest today, Paul Collins, professor and chair of English at Portland State University. He is the author of many wonderful and well-received books, including The Murder of the Century, The Gilded Age Crime That Scandalized a City and Sparked the Tabloid Wars, and Duel with the Devil, the true story of how Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr teamed up to take on America's first sensational murder mystery. But today he's here to discuss his latest historical true crime book, Blood and Ivy, the 1849 murder that scandalized Harvard. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me, Eric. You've written books about some amazing topics. When it's time for you to write a new book, what criteria do you use 
when choosing a new topic? Uh, I, I guess it's a few things. I mean, most of my books, in, in a way, start off simply because I'm looking up something and uh, you know trying to find a, a book-length account of um, whether it's it's uh, about a criminal case or or anything else for that matter. And I find that there isn't a book, uh, or at least there isn't a recent book. And usually my first reaction is uh, uh, of irritation that, you know, why isn't there a book? And then a minute or two later, I'll think, oh, wait, I could write the book. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of what happened with this. And uh, I mean, in this particular case, I was, I was actually teaching a uh, lit class in Victorian detective literature and uh, was uh, talking a bit about Edwin Drood as well and um, was going to talk about this particular case to give some context to it. And when I started digging around, I found that, that there just hadn't been much written uh, uh, recently. There hadn't been a full like book-length narrative account in almost 50 years. But in terms of like what, you know, what signals to me I guess, in a way, the difference between an article and a book, uh, because there's there's plenty of things like that where I'll go, oh, you know, there isn't anything written recently on this. Why not? But what I realize is that it's not going to sustain a book is I think just the depth and and sort of richness of events, you know, something that plays out over a few days uh, and with a fairly limited cast of people can be difficult to to draw a sustained narrative out of. But when there's uh, a number of complications when it plays out over months. Um, when the context is interesting, you know, there's a lot kind of going on in the background of of the event. Those are all things that are kind of signs that um, that it might actually work as a book. What had to have been especially fun for you, I'm assuming anyway, as a professor of English, is exploring this incredible cast of of literary characters that surround the main story. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Charles Dickens, Hawthorne, Emerson, Thoreau. It must have been a, a blast incorporating these characters in the story. Yeah, and it, it's funny because in some ways I, I so desperately wanted Melville to show up at the trial, but he never did, <laughs> as far <laughs> as I can tell anyway. Uh, his uh, father-in-law was the, was the chief justice for the trial, um, and I, I kept wondering, you know, am I going to see a sign in his letters or something like that that he he sat in at some point to watch some of the trial? But um, I, I don't think he did. But yeah, just the fact that it was happening right in the middle of this um, extraordinary literary scene, and that Webster, the uh, the accused, knew so many of these people. I, one of my favorite sources when I was working on it was uh, uh, Longfellow, you know, who's a, who's a poet who was immensely popular at that time and really for the rest of the 19th century. He's frankly not very fashionable reading anymore. You, you, you tend not to get a lot of Longfellow, you know, assigned to you out of your Norton anthology and stuff if you take a, a lit survey class now. He's, he's kind of one of those figures that has faded a bit. But he, he was very much in the center of the events. And, and one of my favorite things was uh, reading his journals, uh, which they have at, at, at Harvard. And his journals were published in a very um, censored, probably not the right 
word, but I mean, it, it, you know, a lot was cut out. All the interesting stuff was cut out <laughs> by his son in the late 18th century, back when Longfellow was still popular enough that you could sell an edition of his journals. And uh, I don't think a complete edition of his journals has ever been published, but they're they're great stuff for like just literary gossip of the time and just getting a sense of the t- of the era. So your book opens with a, a fascinating description of Harvard in 1849. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? What it would have been like being a student at the school during this time? Yeah, Harvard and, and colleges in general at that time were really a very different experience than what we think of as colleges now uh, for, for a few reasons. The student population tended to be a good deal younger than what we think of as college age. It was very common for someone to go off to college at 15, 16, 17 years old. And that's you know kind of the exception now. And if anything, incoming college students are, are kind of getting older and older. And uh, so that was one big difference. The other was it was a much less common experience. It was only a very tiny proportion of the population I mean, I can't remember the the numbers off the top of my head, but I know that one study I looked at kind of tallied up the total number of people going to college during, you know, one of these years in the 1840s. And I mean, it was a matter of thousands. Uh, You know, it was a very small proportion of, of America's population. So it was an uncommon experience for someone to go to college. And the other was the the way college even worked they didn't really have majors in the modern sense of the word or electives or things like that you you had a lot of uh, a lot of classics that you had to read you had, you were you were going to read a lot of latin and greek for a few years and deal with a bunch of theology and uh do a bit of natural science and uh very kind of old fashioned rhetoric so yeah the whole nature of the experience was was quite different than what we think of as college now. What was the, the population of, of the area in 1849? What was the geography of the area? And, and what was Harvard's relationship to Boston at this time in history? Yeah, um, I mean, Cambridge and, and Harvard have this strange relation to Boston in a way, which is that particularly during this period, they were almost an extension of the government, (laughs) you know, that that Harvard was so closely aligned with kind of both the leading mercantile and kind of political classes and families in the city uh, that it was, it was one of a number of institutions in the city. Um, The Athenaeum, curiously enough, which is this sort of large private library, essentially, uh, would, would be another that, it was this sort of focal point for many of the families in, in, uh, in and around Boston that essentially controlled the city and by some extension largely controlled the state. So there was a very intimate connection between economic and political power and Harvard and a lot of overlap. Um, someone that was in one of the leading mercantile families was not uncommonly going to be in a political role at some point and also maybe on, say, the Board of Overseers or something like that at Harvard, or at least a member of their family would be. So there's, you know, the, this notion of what Oliver Wendell Holmes later called the, the Brahmins, 
this kind of almost ruling class in Boston was very much a uh, a fact of uh, of life there, and and Harvard was, you know, really the central part of that. That was where they all met in a way. The funny thing about it, though, is that uh, Boston's population was booming during this time. It had this tremendous immigration, particularly from Ireland, coming in. Uh, Cambridge wasn't changing that rapidly by comparison. So Cambridge remained this kind of uh, comparatively bucolic, very college-centered town, even as just across the river this um, uh, the city was uh, entering this uh, really frenetic phase of, of growth. So much of the story centers around the Harvard Medical School and Dr. George Parkman, at least at the beginning of the book anyway. Who, who was Parkman? What was his role at the school? And what was his, his reputation around town? Yeah, Parkman's an interesting figure. And, and, and it's easy, I think, to reduce him to a caricature. And I, I probably fall to that myself sometimes. Um, because, the, the I mean, in a way, the core of uh, the core story, in a way, of this case is basically a, a debtor, this professor, John Webster at, at Harvard, being pursued by his creditor, George Parkman, and, uh, and what results from that. But Parkman was kind of an odd figure. So he was part of one of these very powerful, in effect, kind of ruling families of, of Boston. Uh, he went to Harvard Medical School and took a great interest, actually, in mental health, which by some accounts was something that he, he grappled with himself. There was sort of a, a string of, of people in his family that had mental health issues. And so uh, when he entered the practice of medicine, he actually did his sort of post-college gentleman's tour, which was you know kind of just a thing you would do back then. Rather than hitting all the fashionable spots in Europe, he went around Europe visiting asylums. He wanted to get ideas for how to improve mental uh, mental health facilities. And uh, a lot of his early work was on that and in trying to get a kind of uh, a comparatively progressive, reform-minded facility started up in uh, in the Boston area. So there's that side to him. You know, he, he, he was interested in medical care and in, and in particular, he, he always had an interest in bettering the lot of um, of people with mental health issues. However, that wasn't really his uh, public reputation. His public reputation was as a guy with a lot of money, which was true, <laughs> um, with a lot of land in Boston. It was a landlord for quite a few of the uh, more run-down quarters of Boston, so a number of the immigrant families and so forth. Uh, he'd come by personally to, to get his money. He was quite demanding about it. Uh, he was known to be you know, rather unforgiving and a very sharp dealer in terms of land transactions, including some that were maybe a bit shady. And that was maybe the the part of his reputation that came a bit more to the fore in uh, the aftermath of his of his disappearance. So, yeah, he's he's an interesting guy. And he was a very striking physical presence as well. He's uh, quite tall, very thin had a very sharp jutting jaw and he had a tendency to walk around uh I mean it's it's almost like a caricature in a way but but with his jaw up kind of in the air so you know if you almost think of the 
kind of cartoon image of a stiff Boston Brahmin with a top hat sort of walking about. Uh, that That's him. <laughs> right. And he didn't ride a horse either, right? Right. He didn't want the expense of a horse. So, I mean, this is one of the richest guys in the city. Um, but he would go around uh, and he didn't, he, he kept his staff very minimal, uh, both in his household and for his business. Uh, he just went around collecting rents himself, generally, and he didn't want to pay. He didn't want to pay uh, an assistant to do it, and he didn't want to pay for a horse either. So, uh, yeah, he was uh, thrifty. So it was November twenty third, eighteen forty nine, right, when Doctor Parkman went missing. Who first raised the alarm? Well, in a way, I mean, his family were the people that initially noticed him missing uh, late that afternoon. So he he disappeared kind of, you know, mid-afternoon or like around one or two o'clock is is when his trail starts to go cold. Uh, And he'd been out collecting rents uh, and was seen then headed toward heading towards the medical college. And yeah, he didn't he didn't show up back home at his usual time. But the first person to really raise an alarm about this was his assistant that he had for his business, who then came to the house, didn't didn't find him there. And when Parkman still wasn't wasn't back the next morning, he, he figured something was up. Of course this was, you know, before telephones even, and so someone got called away on business and they sent a note back home and the note didn't reach the house. Uh, you could easily imagine someone was missing even when they weren't. So it, it took a little while. At that first day that he was that he was missing, uh, initially they largely waited to see if he was on any of the incoming trains, if he had left town for something and was coming back. Uh, when there was no sign of a note from him and you know no sign of him on any of the trains, then they knew they had a they had a problem. And how did? the community react to his disappearance? Uh, it, it appeared pretty quickly in the papers. And so initially, the family the family put out a notice, and there was a pretty thorough search for him. They started searching his properties, of which you know he had many. So they had a lot of places they had to go visit. Uh, looking around in the basements, the police sent out officers, to kind of all the local railway stations to see if station masters had seen him. Uh, I mean, it really helped that he had a very distinct physical bearing and a very distinct kind of walk. People recognized him from a distance. So, yeah, there it immediately got quite a bit of attention. And then uh, pretty soon after, when he was he still wasn't showing up, then the family the family had made some sort of vague promise of. Uh, you know, the, this will be appreciated if you, if you tell us where he is. But when he kept not showing up, then they started offering reward money, uh, which eventually hit $3,000, which is a huge sum for 1849. And that got a lot of attention. Um, then everybody was beating the bushes looking for this guy. And eventually his body was discovered. Tell us who found him, where his body was found, and the condition his body was in, if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, so Parkman was last sort of definitively seen entering uh, Harvard Medical School, what was then still known as uh, Massachusetts Medical College. 
and there was like kind of a smattering of sightings of him at really disparate points around the city uh, later that afternoon, and I think even the next day. But none of them quite added up. Like it, it didn't add up to a route that made any sense. And the problem was was that in these later sightings, no one actually spoke to him. Uh, they just said that they saw him on the street. But the last time that people had actually seen him and talked to him so that it was sort of a definitive sighting was as he was walking up to the medical school. And so it was very confusing for investigators because they kept getting these, and they would also get letters from saying that he was in New York or he was at a boat out at sea. or So that they were getting these very contradictory leads. But there was some suspicion at the medical school that, maybe he never left the school itself. So the police searched the school for a couple times, a couple times. And one of the people at the school, Ephraim Littlefield, he was essentially the janitor at the school. Uh, and he lived in an apartment in the basement of the school. So he was sort of this on-site janitor, began suspecting that Parkman had never made it out. He had heard Parkman and, and uh, this professor, John Webster, who also had a chemistry lab in the basement, uh, he'd heard them arguing at one point, and he also knew that there was one place in the building that the police had not looked, and that was the privy for Dr. Webster's office. Didn't have much in the way of plumbing, uh, although they did have some, but Webster had essentially a, a, a privy, just this, this seat over a hole that went into a vault that kind of took in a bunch of water basically from the river and so forth, and also had some running water going into it, but it wasn't a, it wasn't like a flush toilet in the modern sense. It was kind of a glorified uh, outhouse, and uh, he knew the police hadn't looked in there because it, it was very difficult to access it for one, for one, and, and then also it's just a very unpleasant place to be looking around in. He got suspicious, and so over the Thanksgiving break in uh, 1849, when the school was basically empty. He, start, he went into the sub-basement of the school and basically smashed him into the privy through one of the walls. Uh, and he found what seemed to be Parkman. It was really not identifiable. What, what he found were the remains of a person cut up into multiple pieces. And so, I mean, this brought up a couple of key aspects of the case. One was just that uh, identification was going to be a real challenge. And the other was, why was there a body there in the first place? And, you know, in any other building, if you found a body, you would figure something was up. <laughs> However, this was a medical school, and they had cadavers all over the place. And, in fact, they had a sort of charnel vault that they, they would throw stuff down when they were done with it. And so the defense in the case wound up, among other things, kind of hinging on trying to attack the identification of the body as Parkman's, and then implying that the body was not the victim of a homicide at all, but just maybe one of the one of the bodies that had essentially been misplaced or sort of improperly disposed from, from the dissecting room. And what had led Littlefield to look in the privy? I think it was a few things. One was that, uh, one was just almost a process of elimination. Parkman was not showing up anywhere else. The school was the last place he'd been definitively seen entering. And this was the one 
part of the school that hadn't actually been searched. So that was that was part of it. He had also heard uh, the the two men arguing. So you know, it's not too hard to draw the inference from there that maybe something was amiss. Uh, and he he quietly went to some of the other uh, professors on the medical school faculty and asked them, you know, is it okay if I if I look down there? And they said, yeah, go go take a look. So other people had their suspicions as well. I, I think it was. It was a surprise to the public that Webster was having money trouble, but I think other others that were a bit closer to him may have already suspected it. The initial belief by police was that an Irish immigrant had, had probably committed the murder, because as, as you point out in your book, there was immediate disbelief by the Boston elite that one of their own could do something so horrible, Right. Oh yeah, yeah, and and that was the I think the general tendency of the time was I mean for a variety of reasons they they would uh, they would blame the immigrants. One is just the the sort of uh, general xenophobia I guess, uh, which uh, sadly has has not left our country, not purely a historical thing. But the other is that there was a great deal of uh, of poverty in the immigrant population, and so theft and crime and drunkenness and things like that tended to be pinned on them. And anything that could be associated with that tended to be pinned on them as well. And so, yeah, initially when, when Parkman disappeared, one pretty popular theory, and it was in its own way an entirely plausible one, was basically that he'd been held up while collecting his rents. He was known to go and collect rents personally. And because of that, he tended to carry a great deal of money on him. So um, he certainly would have been uh, potentially an easy target for that kind of theft. And so, and a number of his tenants and people like that were immigrants. So, yeah, there was there was a lot of suspicion cast on the local immigrant population, the Irish specifically. And when it was discovered that not only was it not them, it was in fact one of the professors at Harvard. There was. Very well. There was essentially a uh, what verged on a riot. Uh, a huge number of people gathered around the medical school, and uh, at one point, the newspapers were predicting that this crowd was maybe going to tear the medical school down. It, it and it didn't help that there was already a great deal of suspicion in the local community about Harvard Medical School, and not without reason, because the medical school had. They they basically had the the right to claim pauper bodies in the city for their dissecting rooms. So many of the uh, immigrant population of the city, there many of them were Irish Catholics. They took great offense at this use of of bodies, more so than some of the other populations in the city did. So they were already unhappy about Harvard, you know, claiming their loved ones essentially from the graveyard, and now here's the school. Uh, or, or people around the school blaming them for a crime that the school itself or someone on the faculty had, had committed. So there was a, a lot of tension. Um, and the mayor wound up having to call out uh, essentially the local troops to, to guard the school and to sort of make this crowd disperse. At what point did suspicions shift from an immigrant, I mean, one of Parkman's debtors, to Webster? 
It really wasn't until, I mean, I think in the public mind, it wasn't until the discovery of the body. You know, Littlefield and a few other people may have been suspicious of Webster, but I think had had Littlefield not looked there, I think Webster would have gotten away with it. And I think very few people would have suspected him, partly because at, at that time, the notion of a Harvard professor doing this was just so unthinkable. And also because there were a number of confusing and kind of contradictory leads about where Parkman might have gone. And I should say that, it, it, so one thing that came out in the trial was in fact that there was a guy visiting the city that day, the day that, that Parkman disappeared, who was an extraordinary physical match for George Parkman. <laughs> so that's why, uh, or it, seemed, it, it seems like that is probably why there were all these very confusing sightings uh, of Parkman, that initially the, the police couldn't figure out a timeline that really made sense for where Parkman had been going. Uh, it's because there were two people that answered to his description. But I, I think that confusion, that wasn't figured out for months. I think had Ephraim Littlefield not started digging around, I, I think I think Webster might never have been found out. Uh, it really wasn't until the body was found that, that uh, people started putting it together. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. 
Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. How, how confident were the police in their investigation? Do they deserve any criticism, or do you think, in hindsight, that they were fairly effective in their investigation? I think they were relatively efficient for their time, and, and it was a very different time. The, the kind of modern standards of, in particular, securing a crime scene just really didn't exist at that point. Uh, there were all kinds of people clomping around in, in the laboratory and around the privy and, and so forth, um, at you know once once this was discovered, and so by any modern standard, you know they did an atrocious job, <laughs> but but that I want to say it was uh, this guy Hans Gross that really decades later kind of came up with what became more like the modern standards for not disturbing a crime scene. That notion just really wasn't out there in 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 the 1840s. So certainly by the standards of their time, they did a pretty thorough job. And in particular, I mean, really, I think the only thing that that the Boston police could be readily faulted on was not looking in the privy. That was the one spot that they had overlooked, and, and it took Littlefield you know, taking some initiative to, to go and look there. The subsequent investigation was really pretty thorough uh, as, as a piece of prosecution, the subsequent trial is really quite impressive. There, there are a number of irregularities about it, which also I think certainly in the modern day don't look good. <laughs> but in terms of just amassing evidence, they really did quite a bit of work. They, they tracked down a number of financial irregularities associated with Webster. They did a tremendous amount of work to try to identify the body, uh, really pioneering work in a way. It, and it probably helped in that regard that some of the best experts in the country were literally in the same building. Uh, they were the members of the Harvard Medical School faculty. So that, that made things a bit easier. But, um, yeah, the police actually did you know, uh, a fairly thorough job on it. Would you mind walking us through Webster's arrest? Yeah, the, the arrest was pretty strange <laughs> because if the accounts of the arresting officers are to be believed. And, and, and this is actually how this was being recounted in the press as soon as it happened. So uh, it seems to check out. What they did was after, after Parkman's body was found, the police went out to Cambridge and went to Webster's house and said, oh, hey, we're doing another search of the building. You know, sorry, sorry to bother you, but you know, can you can you come along with us and, and let us into your lab and you know help us out as we look around the building one more time? Uh, and so Webster uh, accompanied them on this um, uh, on this pretense, basically, that they were going to be doing this. Uh, what happened was instead of going then back to the medical school, they went past the turnoff uh, that they should have taken to go to the medical school and kind of kept going. Uh, Webster pointed this out, and they said, "Oh, yeah, you know, it's a we've got an, an experienced driver tonight. We'll we'll get there." And then they stopped at at, a, at another building and said, "Oh, you know what? We've got a bit of business we have to do here first. Uh, you know, do you mind waiting a few minutes?" And then they uh, 
went, well, you know, why, why don't you come in? This was Durastus Clapp in particular, this one uh, member of the police force. Well, you know, why don't you come along with us? They went through this door, and it was basically the back door to the local jail. <laughs> so uh, he, he basically just walked right into jail. And uh, and at that point, he looked around and said, wait, where am I? And they said, you're under arrest. <laughs> uh, so it was uh, you know, pretty cleverly done. Uh, it did emerge afterwards that, um, uh, it, I mean, it's almost a little too good to be true, that Webster um, had not long afterwards started going into convulsions, which I think at the time people thought might have just been he was overcome by emotion or something like that. Um, and the timeline on this is not clear, but at some point, either in the ride or possibly right after they arrested him, um, he realized what was up. <laughs> and uh, he had been carrying some poison on him on himself, some strychnine, and he took it. Uh, but he did not give himself a sufficient dose. So he had, uh, instead, it just an extremely unpleasant uh, day or so um, after after taking that dose. Um, so uh, they very they very nearly lost him uh, for that reason. But uh, nobody quite figured it out at the time. They didn't realize that he'd actually poisoned himself. I would imagine because of his profession, he had easy access to things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it didn't help also that, that – um, really, everybody had e- easy access to poison in, in those days. You know, arsenic was used all over the place. It was used as an additive for wallpaper paste and stuff like that. Used it for rat poison. Strychnine was, you know, readily available for the same reason. I mean, that was actually one of the big problems in prosecutions back then. Was that arsenic, in particular? was so widely available and used in so many consumer products that if you found arsenic in a body, it was actually kind of hard to prove that the exposure or the presence was was the result of a crime because there were so many other ways that conceivably someone could get exposed to it. Which, uh, I, I should add, Webster, as a chemistry professor and as a member of this medical school faculty, was quite familiar with the courtroom because he was called in as an expert witness sometimes on arsenic poisoning cases. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, um, well, he certainly had plenty of access to poisons. <laughs> but, uh, you know, anyone else with a little bit of initiative could certainly could certainly get them too. He was quite the, the character in the classroom, by the way, wasn't he? Yeah, he's, uh, he's kind of an interesting figure. He, so yeah, he ran both undergraduate chemistry courses back, courses in like chemistry and also geology, which was seems to have been his real love. And he would teach that over at the main Harvard campus in, in Cambridge, but then he would also teach chemistry uh, over at the medical school, uh, which was actually in, in Boston proper. And yeah, he was very fond of highly visual demonstrations, uh, you know, sort of pyrotechnics and things like that having things that, you know, could blow up during his lecture, which they did occasionally. I know at least at, at least one point he had something that either blew up or caused a, essentially a projectile to fly out of his demonstration gear and right into one of the lecture hall seats. Uh, and it would have killed someone if they'd been sitting there. And uh, his dean had to very sternly, you know, warn him to, uh, you know, not, 
not kill the students. So, <laughs> yeah, but he was very much into his subject. He was, you know, clearly. And it's funny because I think in the aftermath, some of the accounts made it out that he was sort of uh, maybe a bit of a mediocre talent. I don't think that was particularly the case. His, his colleagues seem to have regarded him as, uh, you know, a, a, a perfectly competent uh, chemist and, and, you know, good at what he was doing. So Webster was eventually indicted for murder. What kind of defense team did Webster have, and, and what was their strategy for defending him going in? Yeah, so that was kind of an interesting challenge for him because initially he tried to he, he contacted some of the most prominent local lawyers to try to set up his defense, and in particular, he went to Daniel Webster, and then he also went to uh, you know today uh, maybe a less familiar name, but uh, Rufus Choate, who was really one of the most prominent attorneys of the time. And Choate and uh, and 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 Daniel Webster, uh, in effect, had the same reaction when when he went to them. When you know they they looked at at the evidence, at what was known about the case and at the indictment. And uh, I think Choate, in particular, said to him, "Well, you're you're going to have to admit to the the homicide. I can keep you from the scaffold. <laughs> you know, I can keep you from actually drawing a murder charge because they would have to prove intent." And, you know, and I don't think they can. We can, you know, this could be self-defense. This could have been, um, as, as Chote put it, a visitation from God, or in other words, temporary insanity. You know, there were a number of ways they could approach this. And, and Chote years later made the, the comment that he was quite sure he could have succeeded. And in fact, he had succeeded in some other cases with exactly that type of strategy. But John Webster just didn't want to hear of it. He, it, he, he, was insistent that he was innocent. Uh, and in particular, his family was especially insistent on it. And I, I, it, it, I've often wondered whether Webster might have been inclined to plead guilty to a lesser charge had it not been for maybe not wanting to lose face to his family, <laughs> because his family was quite convinced that he was innocent. And so he, he went for kind of this all or nothing approach that he, you know, he was going to be proven innocent. And that was that. And um, that was a, a great miscalculation on his part. He did wind up with um, two other attorneys, Pliny Merrick uh, and Ned Sawyer, and very good attorneys in and of themselves, not especially uh, experienced in criminal trials, though. And even if they had been, they were really given a very hard case to defend. You know, they, they saw the same evidence that, that Daniel Webster and, and Rufus Choate looked at and had to somehow make a case for innocence out of it. And that was a pretty tall order. <laughs> so during the trial, what was the scenario that the prosecution laid out? How did they suggest Parkman was murdered what did they think might have happened during the last few minutes of his life? Yeah, the, you know, the funny thing about the prosecution is that in a way they left a bit of a gap, which is that they didn't exactly figure out how Parkman had died and the exact circumstances around that death. What they were able to do was lead the jury right up until the moment that he disappeared and then identify the body afterwards and, and in effect show 
that by extension, this clearly seemed to have been a murder committed by Webster. And so what what they're able to do is identify Parkman actually going into the building, and, and Webster himself confirmed that they had met. Webster claimed he had paid uh, off a debt to Parkman at this meeting, and that Parkman then left to go deposit the money. So what the prosecution was trying to show was essentially that Parkman had never left, and that the other identifications made of Parkman were inaccurate, and that the body found at the medical college was indeed Parkman. So a lot of their prosecution hinged on on the identification of the body. And one of the absolutely key ways that they did that was partly through just a, a, a reconstruction of the skeleton, but also in particular was with dental evidence. And this was really the first time that this had been used in certainly in an, in an American uh, capital case. And it, I mean, it's interesting to read the transcript now because the defense objects on the basis of this being the sort of weird, untested form of evidence. Uh, And of course, now the idea of using dental records is very straightforward in a way. It helped, I think, that, I mean, this was actually a very auspicious case to begin with, uh, or to begin using uh, dental evidence with, because Parkman had very odd teeth, uh, as it turned out. He only had three teeth left in his head. And, you know, not, not uncommonly given the dental care at the time, the typical thing you would do if you had lost that many teeth, and you know Parkman was getting up there in age, uh, is that you would get all the remaining ones pulled and then just get a full set of dentures. It's sort of the simplest thing to do. Parkman, for whatever reason, uh, didn't want to do that. He wanted to he wanted to hang on to his last few teeth, so he had to get a very elaborate set of dentures that would. It was like this sort of triptych lower denture that kind of hinged and fit around the remaining teeth that he had. So he had he had this very recognizable and specific set of dentures and the molds made for them, which his dentist, another Harvard medical guy uh, named Nathan Keep, had hung onto the molds. So when they found Parkman's, uh, or you know, where they found like a jaw and a number of teeth and some chunks of dentures, he was able to identify them. So it was a very innovative prosecution and, and a very convincing one for the jury. I think the other the other big challenge they had was establishing motive. And that turned out to be the easier part because the financial records were pretty clear that Webster had gotten very deeply into debt. And a number of people had not only uh, were creditors for him, but that he had been using the same security, which was a, a cabinet full of valuable minerals. It was a, a geological collection, basically. He had been using the same security to get multiple loans. So he'd been committing a bit of, of, loan, of loan fraud, basically. And so from that, they were able to establish a clear motive for why he may have argued and therefore uh, attacked Parkman. What was the eventual theory on how Parkman had been murdered? Well, yeah, ultimately, Webster confessed. Um, and, and he made a number of last-ditch attempts to not only to uh, get out of the charge, uh, but then to get the charge overturned and then to get a pardon from the governor. And it it really wasn't until all that had, had clearly failed that uh, I think he, he finally decided to make his peace uh, and confessed. And by, I mean, it's, it, there's still an interesting discrepancy there because by Webster's account, what happened was 
that Parkman had been actually going to his lectures and just sitting in them, his med school lectures, and just sitting there and glaring at him. Uh, and then as soon as the students would leave, he'd start you know, yelling, you know, I want my money. And it, I, I have to say that, that a number of the contemporary accounts at that time, people seemed to all too readily believe this as something Parkman would do. <laughs> he's, he's not the most sympathetic <laughs> figure in a way. I mean, it, it's funny because I, I found lots of people that still considered themselves uh, friends of Webster. I didn't find anyone that described themselves as a friend of Parkman. <laughs> but, yeah, so Parkman would would go and glare at him and, and basically dun him for this money. And this particular occasion, he, he kind of finally managed to go too far, which was that he brought, I think, a draft of a letter that he had written decades earlier to Harvard to get Webster hired at Harvard because Parkman was a very powerful guy with the college. And he kind of rattled this letter in Parkman's or in Webster's face and and said something to the effect of, you know, I got you hired. I'm going to get you fired, too. And by Park, uh, by uh, Webster's account, he then picked up the nearest thing he, he could grab, uh, which was this sort of very like heavy piece of wood and struck Parkman as hard as he could in the head. Parkman fell down and was dead. And that in and of itself seems believable enough. However, I noticed in the, the letters and the journals of uh, George Bemis, who was on the, on the prosecution uh, team, he talked with some of the other faculty at the medical school about this explanation that, that Webster finally gave. And they said, no, that's not what it looks like. <laughs> Uh, I, I think they believed that uh, the entire story about how he got enraged at Parkman and then attacked him seemed entirely believable. But I think they thought that his attack on Parkman may have been a bit more frenzied than just one whack in the head. But I think uh, Webster didn't really want to admit to that. I, I will say I, I entirely believe that it was not particularly premeditated. I think Webster would have you would think he, he would uh, plan it out a bit more carefully if it was. Uh, instead, he, he he was stuck with a body, and he didn't know where to put it, and he panicked, and it, it didn't go well for him. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that if he had admitted what happened, or at least something close to what had happened, I, I think he, he wouldn't have faced uh, the gallows, which is, which is what he ultimately did, uh, uh, which is ultimately what happened to him. But yeah, you know, I, I think it was in a way just uh, he just exploded. He just became angry. So that confession came after his conviction. Right. Who did he give his confession to? It was with a minister, actually. So he was convicted. And um, one interesting thing about the conviction, I think, is that it seems to have been an absolute shock to Webster and his family, who were quite sure that he was going to be found not guilty. But the people observing the trial, the more they observed the trial, the more they felt that Webster was going to get convicted. You know, just the, the way the evidence was piling up, it really did not look good for him. But yeah, I mean, he, he really exhausted his options first. He tried to get it appealed kind of on, on technical grounds. That didn't work. And uh, when that didn't work, he then went to the governor, uh, or, or specifically it's this, uh, I think it's called the Executive Council which advised the governor on such things to try to get a pardon, and uh, that didn't work either. And so it was really when when he had, had uh, 
gone through all of his other possibilities that he uh, he finally talked to uh, uh, the Reverend George Putnam, who was a, a pretty prominent clergyman in the area, uh, and and confessed to him. Can you talk about the day of, of Webster's execution? What was his mental state, and how did the execution play out? Um, you know, it, one thing that really struck me, actually, was how controversial it was, and not necessarily on the basis of Webster's innocence, although there were some people that still believe that. But I think the, the, more, the more familiar people became with the evidence, the, the uh, fewer calls there were of, of his being innocent. But there was a very substantial debate going on in the state at that time over the death penalty, and that had been going on for years. And so this, this case now became you know, kind of the latest iteration of that. And if you look through the, through the letters to the governor and to the chief justice of the Supreme Court in the state, not only do you get these beseeching letters of people begging them not to send Webster to the, to the scaffold, you also get many, many threatening letters that they were going to send lynch mobs and, and uh, uh, people to set fire to the governor's house and things like that. It was a very uh, heated issue, and um, I was surprised by the number of really angry letters that the judge and the governor in particular was getting about this. So, yeah, it was a very divisive issue. Uh, There were a number of of people in Massachusetts and in Boston that were really unhappy about this being carried out. The execution itself, when it was carried out at the jail, basically, out in the kind of the, the yard of the jail... It was, as I think was fairly common at the time, a huge public spectacle. So it it drew this immense crowd. People were kind of hanging out of all the windows and on the rooftops of neighboring buildings. Uh, Some of the neighboring buildings were essentially charging admission uh, for people to get in so they could look out the windows. What was interesting was that there are accounts of other buildings or apartments, uh, people like that, that actually put up signs saying, we do not support the death penalty and uh, not letting people into their building to, to, to be spectators. So that, that pushback against the death penalty was, was visible even at the scene of, uh, of the execution itself. And, and the execution itself went off without a hitch, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and one thing that always strikes me about this, there was a, there was a very interesting account uh, of this case written in, it came out in like 1971, uh, by Robert Sullivan, who had been in like in the 60s, he had been the um, the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. So it was a very interesting person to be looking at the case. And uh, he's not uh, a narrative stylist by any stretch of the imagination, but his legal insights in the book are are very interesting. One funny thing about Sullivan's account, though, is he somehow became convinced that. Webster's uh, confession was a hoax, which made no sense at all uh, when I looked over it because Webster never disowned the confession. The confession was made to a very prominent clergyman. And that same clergyman, George Putnam, was the person that he chose to lead him up to the scaffold. So yeah, that was, the, that was literally the last person he saw when they, when they put the hood on him was, uh, was the minister that he had confessed to. So... Um, Webster seemed to have reached some, you know, some measure of reconciling himself to what he'd done. 
and in fact made a point of apologizing to Ephraim Littlefield, the person who had discovered the body. Um, in, in the aftermath of that discovery, Webster's allies not only tried to pin the crime or at least imply that the body, what was maybe just a medical cadaver, had been planted by, by Littlefield. One thing I discovered was that Webster himself very specifically tried to frame uh, Littlefield, tried to plant false evidence to frame him, which he'd never admitted to. I, I, I figured that out from his from his defense notes, among other things, but uh, but he did actually apologize to Littlefield uh, in person. Uh, so, you know, in, in that sense, I guess the the case resolved as as much as it was going to. <laughs> what was the the evidence that he tried to plant? So there was a, a a door going into his laboratory, and and Littlefield would typically have access to the laboratory because you know as the janitor he would go in and clean, and he'd wash the labware and all that kind of stuff. He'd you know, restock the coal for the furnace and, um, you know, just all all those sort of things. After Parkman disappeared, Webster started locking the door all the time to the lab so that Littlefield couldn't get in, which, and this was one of the things that started making Littlefield suspicious. Webster would sometimes lock his lab, but then all of a sudden there was this period of just days where he couldn't get in. Uh, so he wondered what was up. And Webster tried to make the argument that there was a, a portion of the door that could be sufficiently pried up that you could get your hand through it and unlock it from the inside. Because you know part of the idea was that, well, this was locked all the time, so uh, the murder and the disposal of the body and all that had to be Webster. What Webster was trying to prove was that Littlefield could have gotten into the lab to do all this stuff. So what I found was really two things. One was he had a number of notes to his defense team directing them to a certain part of the door to show that this is where, you know, and, and asking him, go to the medical college and look at this part of the door, and, and, and you'll find that, that this is how Littlefield could have gotten in through that door. What I then found uh, separately was a letter by, I believe it was his sister-in-law, um, Amelia Nye, who complained, this was after Webster had, had uh, had died, that one of her relatives had been repeatedly approached by Webster through letters from the jail and things like that to alter the door so that so that this could in fact work. Uh, Webster had also gone to the same you know cousin trying to get the guy to help him escape from the jail too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when I when I found those defense notes about yeah, go look at the door in this one spot, and then this uh, you know in a, in a completely separate place, a letter from an in-law complaining. First of all, she she thought that he did it, <laughs> but then also complaining that yeah, and, you know he's even trying to get so and so to like do all this wacky stuff to the lab door. That's when I you know the the light bulb went off, and I went ah, <laughs> see what you're up to. Right. <laughs> One thing I want to ask you about before you go is about Charles Dickens and his return trip to the United States. He had a special interest in this case. Yeah, Dickens, in a way, was really what got me started um, because it was in reading uh, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which is you know famously this unfinished novel. He, he passed away as he was writing it. And... Uh, uh, in the aftermath of uh, his not finishing that novel, Dickens's son 
said, well, my father had told me what he planned as, as the ending. And the ending was uh, essentially the, the, the plot was going to pivot around the idea of a seemingly respectable person, a choir master in the case of the, the novel, having committed a murder and then having hidden the body in a place full of bodies, namely uh, in a crypt, in a chapel. And the discovery of that body was going to hinge, and its identification was going to hinge on forensics evidence. So that was supposed to be the basic plot of, of Edwin Drood. And I, I think the analog seemed fairly obvious there to this case. And Webster, or uh, rather Dickens, had taken a very specific interest in the case. He'd visited the U.S. in 1842, met uh, John Webster, met a number of like Longfellow and all these other people around, around Boston. He came back for a second American tour, a hugely successful reading tour, it was, it was almost like half reading, half kind of acting out the parts as he was reading them on stage. And he did this in 1867. And his his uh, first stop was Boston. And when he got to Boston, one of the you know one of the first things he wanted to do was he met up with uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and uh, they went out to the medical college. And he said, "I want to see where it happened. Show me show me the lab." <laughs> and he has this wonderful description in one of his letters about uh, of his about how uh how the lab was still you know very creepy <laughs> uh, so yeah it was it was a case that he took a lot of interest in uh and in fact immediately after that visit to the lab he asked his uh, he was he was editing a magazine and, and he had a uh an article done uh, about the case so it was something that that you know clearly fascinated him is the lab still there now no, the building was knocked down, um, must have been something like 80 or 90 years ago now. So, yeah, that's not there. However, uh, it, it's on the site of what is now uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, which is, I mean, the hospital was already there before, but it, it just kept expanding, and it finally expanded into the space where the Harvard Medical School had been. But the... Uh, there are some interesting relics left over from the case, and in particular, the, the Conway uh, Medical Library and Museum at, at Harvard has a number of relics from the case, uh, including the casts that the dentist Nathan Keep had made uh, of Parkman's jaw. So, you know, these were really the, you know, the, I mean, these were basically what sent Webster the, to the gallows. I mean, those was really the key evidence. Uh, they still have those uh, those molds in their museum. So there's uh, odd bits and pieces of uh, the case still around. But the yeah, the setting itself is uh, unrecognizable today. It's all modern buildings. <laughs> well, well, this has been great. Where can can people go to find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, I've got a, a website. It's uh, literarydetective.com, and and that has. Um, uh, stuff about this and a bunch of my previous books as well. Great. And again, you are Paul Collins, and your book is called Blood and Ivy, the 1849 Murder That Scandalized Harvard. Uh, are you working on anything right now? Yeah, I'm starting to kick uh, a book around, although I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a break. I'm, I'm working as department chair for the English department at, at Portland State. And I have to say, serving as a department chair and writing a book at the same time is not an undertaking I particularly recommend. <laughs> right, I'll bet. <laughs> so I, I may wait till I finish my term before I take the next one on. 
Oh, good idea. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Thank you.